Hello and welcome to yet another anime podcast. Just who the hell do I think I am? I'm Ninja Boy and I'm yet another anime podcast host. Hope everyone is doing well out there. Uh, I know this episode is about a week later, so but I swore I have a good anime related reason for that. Kind of. Uh, obviously, going by the show's title and following up from last week's episode, uh, the, this week we're going to be going over the works of Hayao Miyazaki. And it took me a little bit longer to finish catching up on all of his films that I hadn't seen yet. Um, as for why it took me longer than expected, well, let's just say that the new Bushiro remix uh, rhythm game, uh, D4DJ Gooey Mix, came out at the end of uh, May and taken up a lot more of my time than I anticipated. It's just so addicting, um, especially after having seen the anime. So, yeah, there may be an episode on Bussy Road anime in the future uh, if this keeps up since I'm totally tempted to check out all of their other games and anime now. Uh, before we hop into this week's episode, I'd strongly recommend you check out last week's episode where I dig into the works of Isao Takahara, uh, which is a companion piece in, for- in sorts of this one. But if you're already caught up, uh, without further ado, let's get into the second of three episodes diving into the works of Studio Ghibli, uh, spoilers of varying degrees for all of Hayao Miyazaki's works ahead. So when you ask the average person, not necessarily the average anime fan, uh, if they like anime, you'll probably get a number of responses. Obviously, if they do happen to be a weeb or otaku, they definitely will have their opinions of what they watch and what they don't like. Uh, maybe they're just mostly the big shonen shows like Naruto or My Hero Academia or potentially sold out online and Attack on Titan since those were in vogue for a while. Uh, some may have memories of Pokemon and Dragon Ball as a kid. Uh, for most non-anime fans though, or people you would call non-anime fans, I would harbor a guess that they still would probably have heard of, if not seen, the works Spirit of the Way, My Neighbor Totoro, Moving Castle, and so on. I've definitely come across people who in my life who have been like, oh yeah, I'm not an anime fan, but I love Spirit of the Way. And that's totally fine if anime isn't there or your jam, though that'd be interesting while you're listening to an anime podcast if you're not an anime fan. But in any case, uh, without a doubt, Hayao Miyazaki and the works of Studio Ghibli have definitely been influential on the world of anime and animation and film in general. Uh, to this day, Spirit of the Way is the only anime to have ever received an Academy Award, and for a long time, it was the highest grossing film, not just anime, uh, out of Japan before Demon Slayer took the title away last year. And many, many, many individuals and people working in the industry now point to Spirit of the Way and Hayao Miyazaki's works as inspirations for them. Uh, some may say his work is too influential in that that particular corner of the anime world uh, is somewhat overrepresented and overshadows the rest of the medium and in fact what uh, the studio, Studio Ghibli, has to offer. Uh, the YouTube channel, Stu- uh, Beyond Ghibli, explicitly sets out to counter the notion that anime is the only good anime is coming from Studio Ghibli. But there still is good reason for them to be so influential. They're just that damn good in pretty much all aspects of their films. And while I talked last week about the works of co-founder Isao Takahata, Studio Ghibli is arguably most well-known for, and sometimes used synonymously with, the works of one Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, Miyazaki-sensei was born in 1941 in Tokyo as the second of four sons of Katsuji Miyazaki, the owner of Miyazaki Airplane Company, a manufacturing company which during World War II produced the iconic Mitsubishi A6M Zero airplane. 
Um, at the age of four, Miyazaki survived the bombing of the city of Utsunomiya, where the company was based, uh, which would have an impact on him for the rest of his life. Uh, also early on in his life, his mother, whom he described as a strict intellectual and regularly questioning of socially accepted norms kind of woman, uh, would suffer from tuberculosis and spend many years in the hospital. Uh, from a young age, he knew he wanted to be a manga artist, always drawing, all, um, but he was, and he was inspired by mangaka such as the famous Osamu Tezuka, among others. However, anecdotally, he had trouble drawing people actually and instead focused on more mechanical designs such as planes and boats and tanks and so on. Uh, his ambitions were further encouraged by the first color anime film in the 1958 film Panda and the Magic Serpent, which came out in his high school years. Uh, after high school, he attended the prestigious Gakusen University and was part of the Children's Literature Research Club, the closest thing to a comic club, uh, before graduating as a political science major and an econ, econ major in 1963. Shortly after, he found his way to pursue his, his career as an animator at Toei Animation as an in-betweener, working on films and TV shows such as Doggy March uh, and, and, and Wolf Boy Ken, um, as well as Gulliver's Travel Beyond the Moon. Um, and he ended up becoming the chief secretary of uh, Toei's labor union, showing his pro-labor sentiments. Um, as I noted in the Takahata episode, uh, Miyazaki would also work with his future co-founder on the latter's directorial debut, Adventures of Horrors, Prince of the Sun, as a key animator and scene designer, or a role that they specifically created for him. Um, and he was being mentored in this and by you know, the same individual, Ta Tacho uh, Otsuka. Uh, after that film, uh, parallel to his work as an animator at Toei on works such as The Thousand, the Wonderful World of Puss in Boots, Flying Phantom Ship, Animal Treasure Island, and Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, Miyazaki would also publish the manga People of the Desert, which is about a separate boy uh, in the uh, central, um, central Asian-inspired desert region trying to evade a nomadic militia to try to bring peace to the region. Uh, this was published in Boys and Girls newspaper under the pseudonym Akitsu Saburo, continuing on his dream of as a child to become a mangaka. Uh, he also worked as the, as the mangaka for the tie-in for the aforementioned Puss in Boots anime appearing in Tokyo Magazine. Miyazaki would leave Toei with Takahata in 1971 and end up working on Lupin III Part 1 under another different pseudonym uh, for his former mentor, um, along with other projects with Takahata such as Panda Go Panda, a failed to launch Pippi Longstocking adaptation, and the world masterpiece leader at Nippon Animation, telling stories such as Heidi Girl of the Alps, among others. Eventually, in 1979, he would return to TMS Entertainment, uh, or he moved to TMS Entertainment for his directorial debut, the, Lupin the, th the second Lupin III film film, Castle of Cagliostro. So for those who don't know Lupin Third, it's a franchise based on the manga by mangaka Monkey Punch, following the antics of Arsene Lupin Third, grandson of the fictional French Gentleman Thief by Loris Leblanc from 1905 Arsene Lupin. Uh, there's definitely a Lupin episode at some point in this podcast future, but the gist of the series is that Lupin is a master thief who is a bit of a scoundrel using various gadgets and disguises to run cards and heists that no normal man could pull off, accompanied by Marksman Jigen, Samurai Gorman, and sometimes love interest sometimes Times backstabbing enemy uh, Fujiko Mide, uh, whichever suits her more, as well, and they were often chased by ICPO inspector officer Inspector Zanagata. Now, Lupin has definitely varied in characterization over the years. Early on, he was a bit more cold-hearted and remorseless and selfish, including including killing some individuals in the way of his uh, his heist, uh, with a bit of a lone wolf streak um, and a bit of a party animal side to him as well, uh, more so like in the manga's origins. 
However, in the first one of the anime um, and low ratings on those first few episodes, Miyazaki and Takahata were brought on again, um, uh, um, bringing Lupin and Gang to be a bit more kid friendly and related. Uh, you know, the degree to which Lupin in the scenarios uh, ranges from self-interested to altruistic, serious and gritty to goofy and wacky, Scooby-Doo to James Bond varies on depending on who is directing Lupin at the time. Um, and as does whether or not Fujiko and Lupin are on and off again and whether they're screwing each other over mid-heist or not. Uh, personally, I'm a bit of a fan of Part 4, uh, which is where I started with the franchise, uh, which has a nice balance between the two extremes, but that's neither here nor there. As far as Castle of Cagliostro, again, the second feature film in the franchise uh, goes, Miyazaki's depiction definitely falls on the much more family-friendly side. Uh, personally, not my favorite take. I definitely love a touch of scoundrel in my Lupin as well. A bit more femme fatale, if you know what I mean, with Fujiko. But you know, definitely in line with what Miyazaki would later put out for the rest of his career and kind of you know in line to the extreme almost of where he did when he revamped the character in the anime. Uh, he definitely is the most altruistic and, dare I say, heroic iteration that I've ever seen of Lupin. Uh, even when he's doing good in other iterations, there's usually something in it for Lupin from what I can remember. Um, here, he's just doing it out of the goodness of his heart, more or less. Uh, nonetheless, this serves as Miyazaki's directorial debut, and at least when it comes to action sequences, still has that happy-go-lucky energy um, that is, is, is at the peak of Miyazaki's uh, scenes. Uh, Miyazaki's love for all things uh, Europe, with Cagliostro uh, being a fictional European country and a lot of production design based on Miyazaki's work for Heidi of the Alps, uh, you know, signals other signposts of what Miyazaki's later works would so as well, uh, which we'll talk about in each of his films. Um, there are also various airships throughout, which is reflecting his love for aviation, uh, specifically the gyrocopter in the film I'm thinking about, again hearkening back to his family's business in the airplane industry. Uh, further, I mentioned in my Takahata episode that uh, Takahata was influenced by the film King and the Mockingbird, uh, a French film by animator Paul Grimault. Uh, that film shows a lot of similarities with the plot of this one as well, uh, stopping the marriage of a tyrant and an unwilling bride in a trap-filled palace. Um, I will say also that the car chase sequence near the start of the film is top-notch for sure. Uh, moving on from Lupin, of which Miyazaki would direct two more episodes for the Part 2 series under su another pseudonym, uh, which would feature character designs from some of his future films, including Laputa and Nausicaa, uh, he would go on to work for some episodes of Sherlock Hound for TMS, as well as work on the manga The Journey of Suna, published by Tokuna Soten, again taking elements from People of the Desert. Um, you know, he started working on concepts for a couple other movie projects, either an adaptation of a Sengoku period drama, Warren State's Demon Castle, or an adaptation of the heavy metal comic uh, Richard Corbin's work Wolf, Ralph, sorry, Ralph, a very mature comic about a dog turned dogman who helps save the princess. Uh, but producer Toshio Suzuki from Takuma Soten uh, couldn't secure funding for the project as either project as the former wasn't based on the pre-existing manga and the latter they couldn't get the rights for it. Uh, instead, they brought on Miyazaki to make a manga, Nausicaa Valley of the Wind, which st started in 1982 and drew from elements from his prior manga and graphic novels. After its early success, Suzuki encouraged Miyazaki to let them adapt it into a film, uh, which Miyazaki initially didn't want to do, but relented with the condition that he, he would be the one to direct the film. Uh, the film adaptation of Miyazaki's manga of the same name debuted in 1984.
Uh, now, Nausicaa would definitely be a herald of much of what Miyazaki does best when left to his own devices. Again, I'll hit on it when we talk about his other films, but I believe that Miyazaki's biggest strength is, is his ability to create worlds, which makes sense given that he, in addition to being a director, as, he was a mangaka as well. Uh, in Nausicaa, he creates a fully realized world, even if we only get to see a small glimpse of it, of a post-apocalyptic situation with lore going back thousands of years and whole ecosystems of toxic plants and giant insects uh, roaming around. Uh, we see that the inhabitants of the world and how they have adapted um, from wearing masks when they travel to small communities who survive thanks to ocean winds keeping the toxic toxins away from their valley. Uh, Miyazaki's love for flight here again comes in the form of many sorts of gliders and airships. In fact, those may be some of my favorite parts of the entire film. Um, adding to this, the environment is uh, Joe Hiasi's Hiyasa, uh, uh, score for the film, which would kick off a long, lifelong collaboration between composer and director kind of like John Williams and Steven Spielberg here in the West. Uh, beyond the environment, which again is lovingly rendered in less detail as Studio Ghibli Hallmark, the human and character dynamics are also fairly realistic. Rather be, than be single-load goons who are you know clearly evil or brave heroes who are definitely good, the war and conflict presented here between the Tomeka Kingdom and the Pajelta Kingdom, where the Valley Con in the middle is super nuanced, with no single side being clearly in the wrong They're both just simply trying to do what they think is best, uh, with just the others happening to get in the way of that. Uh, but this can, in, you know, that leads to the uh, alleged anti-war pacifist message, which would re again reoccur throughout Miyazaki's works, um, as well as his environmental positions, despite his insistence in a number of interviews that this actually wasn't the intent, he just simply wanted to entertain with the film. I also appreciated here how the main antagonist, Princess Kusana, as well as the Nausicaa, as well as Nausicaa, are both strong female leaders of their respective countries, another reoccurring trait throughout his works of strong female characters, which again I suspect comes from his strong willed mother from his youth. Um, this really is Miyazaki leaning hardest into a science fiction direction of any of his works, drawing inspiration from Ursula Le Guin, Isaac Asimov, William Golding, and, Her and Frank Herbert's Dune, as well as the Odyssey from which Nausicaa takes her name as a character. Um, in particular, he was inspired by mercury poisoning of the real-life Minamata Bay and how nature was resilient, thriving in an otherwise poisoned environment, um, and that would eventually form the basis of this world. Uh, side tangent, Nausicaa did have a release here in the West uh, with an English dub adaptation called Warriors of the Wind, released by Manson International and Sobin. That cut about 22 minutes out of the film. Uh, they made more of a child children's action adventure film, losing much of that environmental message, turning the giant insects, the omu, uh, from you know kind of benevolent, gentle giants that you know will attack when provoked to just simply being purely aggressive creatures. Um, after this experience, Miyazaki would have a very strict no edits clause in contracts for foreign distribution of his films, famously sending Miramax a katana later with the film no, with the message No Cuts when they attempted to do the same with Princess Mononoke years later. Uh, Nausicaa would get another Western release in 2005 with a faithful translation in No Cuts. After Natsuka's release, as I noted in the Takahata episode, Miyazaki, Takahata, and Suzuki would buy up the studio uh, that helped make Natsuka, Topcraft, and rebranded as Studio Ghibli, a subsidiary of Takuma Soten. Uh, the studio's first official work would be a film using the same staff at, that as worked on Natsuka, Laputa, Castle in the Sky, directed once again in, by Miyazaki, which released in 1986. Laputa drew on a lot of elements uh, from one of Miyazaki's earlier television works, Future Boy Conan, non-detective Conan, uh, that ran from 1978 and came from his time at Nippon Animation, inspired by Alexander Keith's novel The Incredible Tide, and the name Laputa itself comes from Jonathan Swift's Gulliver Travel as an island floating in the sky. 
While the characters see this role as female protagonists is perhaps not quite as headstrong as some of his others would be, such as Nausicaa, the character of Dola in the Air, the air Pirates, again, Miyazaki absolutely kills it with his steampunk designs for flying airships, is super great, uh, going from seemingly pure bad guy to, uh, after a young girl, to a freewheeling matriarch of a pirate gang with lots of flair. Uh, Miyazaki, again, also let his Europhile self sew, uh, designing much of the architecture based off of European towns and Greek architecture, and in particular being inspired by a mining strike from a visit to Wales that he had made at one point in time. Uh, we also get hints of his reoccurring war theme, sown by the buffoonery of the military and the sinister intent of Muska, um, as well as the idealization of harmony with nature as Laputa is an ecologic utopia where nature is intertwined with ancient technology. I also see him playing into his archetype of gentle giants, uh, with the robots of Laputa being the first instance of that particular trope, shortly followed by the main title character or one of the main characters of his next film. Laputa would go on to be the most successful film at the box office in Japan the year it came out, and would later inspire many other anime, steampunk films, and video games with concepts presented therein. The following year, Miyazaki and Takahata would put out a double feature of My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies. I already talked about Grave of the Fireflies last episode, so I guess it's time to tackle the giant fluffy creature in the room, Totoro. So hot take, uh, I think Totoro is kind of mid when it comes to Ghibli films. Uh, my first time trying to watch it uh, was actually on the same flight where I watched Game of the Fireflies a few several years ago, but I fell asleep about 15 minutes in. And on my watch through this time in the HBO Max, I also had to put it down and take a nap part way through. I don't think it's a bad film per se, I just think that perhaps something it's about something where uh, I'm at the point in my life where it doesn't hit me in the same way that it would as if I were younger. Um, I definitely It definitely does play to Miyazaki's strengths. Uh, when he's not creating a brand new world in this one, as he did with Laputa or Nausicaa, he's still adding on a layer of mysticism, specifically animism, uh, kind of in the Shinto tradition, um, on top of rural uh, post-war Japan, uh, with the introduction of Totoro as an animal who is claimed to be the master of the forest. Uh, and part of that is creating a new world, which I really haven't mentioned, is what, uh, I, it's what I call the Ghibli pause. Um, the moments in the film where nothing really happens, uh, where they kind of these do small, superfluous moments um, to add a sense of realism that, you know, if it's a, it's almost like a real world where like, oh, this, of course, this would be like, it's a normal thing that just happens, right? Like, you don't even pay attention to it, but the fact that it's animated and they took time to build that in and, and add that pause in between um, really says something about their desire to create a really, truly realistic world. Um you know, in, in, in an interview with uh, Wadjuth Ebert, uh, Miyazaki described this as the concept of ma, uh, the space between accents where life is happening and you don't necessarily put the, push the plot forward. I would say personally, I think there's a tad too much ma within Totoro for my liking. I do appreciate it in his other films, though, uh, for sure, uh, which is perhaps why it doesn't hit for me. At one point, I messaged my sister midway saying that, you know, the, the presence of ma throughout kind of made it feel paced more like a horror film uh, than kind of like a relaxing film. Uh, I think specifically during the beginning Suits Fight segments, um, uh, which, you know, I'm not going to get into that whole, ur that whole urban legend about Totoro being a death god and, not, and whatnot. Um, I will say, though, definitely... I iconic scenes here that stand out and definitely help this film hit its cult classic status, uh, waiting in the rain with Totoro at the bus stop and riding the cat bus cup to mind. Um, which again, Miyazaki's uh, character design is full force in here with those gentle giants uh, to the point where Totoro has become Studio Ghibli's mascot and merchandise sales uh, more than made up for the poor box office performance this had in Italy. 
And, you know, I also, side note, finally found a scene where there's this one lo-fi song that I've been listening to for the past couple of years or so. Um, and then actually I found that it samples this scene from Totoro uh, where, um, you know, where May is complaining about her mom, you know, not being able to come home and whatnot uh, because he's sick. Uh, speaking of that scene, uh, one of the underlying stories here in Totoro in the background, which isn't fully fleshed out, I kind of wish they kind of did a little bit more, but maybe that's the point where if it's a reflection on childhood, all of these things don't really get fleshed out for kids. But anyway, uh, Satsuki and May's mom is in the hospital for some unnamed illness for an extended period of time, again, probably inspired by Miyazaki's mom's own experience with tuberculosis as a child. In any case, uh, in 1987, while Miyazaki was working on Totoro, Ghibli got the rights to the film adaptation of Eiko Kodono's uh, children's novel Kiki's Delivery Service. Uh, Kodono has won the prestigious Hans Christian Andersen Award for Children's Literature in 2008 and has written five sequels to Kiki. Uh, Suno Katabuchi, who would later direct In This Corner of the World in 2016 at Studio Mappa, was chosen to be the director along with screenwriter uh, Nobuyuki Isaki. Uh, unfortunately for them, the perfectionist that Miyazaki is, uh, he ultimately ended up taking over as both primary director and screenwriter, expanding the film from a 60-minute special to a full feature that released in 1989, which would be the highest-grossing film at the, box office, the Japanese box office that year. Now, personally, I really like Kiki a bit more, actually, than Totoro. Uh, part of it is perhaps that there was a bit more plot here, per se, and the character development of the titular character uh, and the fantastical elements uh, are a little bit more present throughout, which, side note, I don't remember the exact count, but uh, Totoro shows up a very small amount for the amount of time that, he has, that the film is named after him. Um, I guess the fact that you can see Kiki reflecting the feelings of adolescence in the same way that Totoro reflects the feelings of childhood, um, you know, and, and Kiki reflecting the wanting to grow up, that's definitely something I think I feel and remember a little bit more um, than my than my early childhood, and I think that age difference and the target for the target audience made a little bit more of a difference for me. I've definitely felt that excitement and eagerness of Kiki to want to move to the next stage of her life, even now as an adult, uh, partnered with the realization that you know it may not be as easy uh, as you thought, it, as you fantasized and thought it was going to be. Um, and you know, also at the, toward the end, there's this really profound moment that just hit me hard of like you know. Spoilers, I guess, but like when Kiki has her uh, block of magic and she runs into the artist, and the artist is like, "Yeah, there are days I just don't. I have creative block. I can't do anything, but I just keep going at it. And eventually, you know, I I find that I'm able to at some point. And you know, the encouragement to get over that creative block is something that you know, even today, now as an adult, I I still need to deal with. And that definitely, I that's something I can relate to very strongly. Uh, Miyazaki's love for Europe is again here in force, again partly due to it being set uh, in a fictional northern European country, with the production staff visiting Stockholm and Sweden for pre-production. Uh, interestingly, the novel, which were, you know, were more based on these episodic adventures of Kiki, going out to do these adventures, uh, which Kiki does do adventures, he does do deliveries here, but not nearly as much as you would expect. Um, but you know, the novel is about her going to do these deliveries and coming to some trouble, but she's okay because she's a good girl, she ends up getting out of it. Here, you you know, there's a lot more of this this larger setbacks and, and the feelings of loneliness that Kiki deals with. Um, in fact, because of this, in the early screenplay, the film nearly didn't get the author's blessing when Miyazaki took Kodano sen uh, and you know it, it wasn't until Miyazaki took Kodano sensei on a tour of the studio that they were able to get approval to fit to continue on with the project. 
Um, also not present in the novel were the airship, which, of course, Miyazaki's going to sneak an airship uh, into the film, as well as the homemade bicycle-prepared airplane. Uh, Kiki, again, also serves as a strong, more assertive uh, female lead than uh, similar to Nausicaa, um, again, supported by the motherly figure of Osono, uh, who helps the young words out of their journey, letting her stay in the attic, kind of, again, kind of proving the feminist power of women in his films. Now, toward the end of the production of Kiki's in early 1989, Miyazaki had another sort of manga run in the model magazine, like, you know, airplane models, uh, model graphics uh, entitled Hiteko Jidai, or the, tale, the Age of the Flying Boat, um, filled to the brim with 1920s airplanes and his love f- uh, thereof of the um, Italian bounty hunter uh, tracking down Adriatic sea pirates, the pig Porco Rosso. Um, Japan Airline would end up funding production on what was originally supposed to be a short 45-minute in-flight film based on this manga. Um, but, as with most Miyazaki films, it ended up growing to be a full-length feature. Uh, ev- uh, however, in fact, even after the flight, uh, the film became full-length, uh, it would end up having its debut in flight before uh, in theaters uh, in 1992. So I actually watched Porco Rosso way back in college, uh, I think during spring break when I wasn't going anywhere. Um, this was like almost 10 years ago or something, so it's definitely been a while. And while I didn't rewatch every film that I had seen previously before this episode, um, I did end up rewatching this one because I felt I probably didn't fully appreciate it for what it offered when I first watched it. And boy, does it really hit different on the being on the cusp of my 30s as opposed to being at the beginning of my 20s. Um, there's something in this film about a man and adults in general uh, feeling out of place uh, uh, compared to the present, like his best days are behind them, but you still need to li- go on to continue on living regardless of any- whatever regrets you might have. Uh, if Toto was for young children and Kiki for adolescents, then Porco Rosa is definitely for adults. Um, which, you know, Miyazaki has said that he didn't really enjoy it. He, he, he was kind of embarrassed by this film because he let his passion for airplanes, which we'll talk about in a second, come through so much. It ended up uh, crowding out, you know, making it not quite as suitable for children as he would have liked. Um, but again, more on that later. Um, in particular, uh, during production, Miyazaki was particularly impacted by the outbreak of the Yugoslavian Civil War, which bled into the film having a little bit more somber tone and a little bit more wistful compared to what was in the original manga. Uh, this may be the most grounded of his films, uh, ignoring the pirate, the, the pilot who has somehow turned into a pig, um, being set in a specific time in a specific location, the Adriatic Sea after World War I, with the rise of fascism in Italy as a background. Um, as a result, this definitely has the most politics of the film, with one reading of the film being uh, that it's better to be a red pig, i.e. a communist, in line with uh, Miyazaki's pro-labor stances, um, than a fascist. Um, again, his love for other tropes here, you know, his love for flying in the aviation, a front and center. Um, there are many allusions to aeronautical history, which, you know, side note, Studio Ghibli was named after uh, the nickname for the Italian Caproni CA-309 airplane, which makes a cameo in this film, uh, you know, uh, with more accurate depictions of airplanes as opposed to his more manga fantasy uh, designs from Nausicaa and Laputa, and, you know, various name dropped throughout, Ferrarin, Bellini, Curtis, all being names of figure in aerospace history. Uh, going back to the Piccolo family, his portrayal of strong female characters, again, so not only the, in the Piccolo woman building the plane and being designed by Fio, um, you know, despite Porco sovereignism, but also Gina as well as a central figure who... T- actually kind of drives the action of this film. 
The ostensibly malicious air pirates are also shown to be somewhat buffoonish, again in line with this portrayal of not quite fully evil antagonists, uh, with the real antagonists being the fascists. Um, and yeah, you know, he, he did say that, you know, this is definitely not a kid's project. He was a bit foolish to indulge in his passion so much. But honestly, I think that it's ultimately to this film's benefit, uh, as it is kind of completely that trifecta of different films for different ages in our lives. And in any case, you know, it was one of the highest grossing animated films in, for a while. So, you know, it definitely wasn't poorly received. Uh, after Porco Rosso, Miyazaki uh, focused a bit more on the behind-the-scenes work at Ghibli. Uh, they moved their headquarters in mid-1992 and did some commercial work, and he did storyboards for the screenplay for Whisper in the Heart, another Ghibli film directed by Yosifumi Kondo. In 1994, he started working on his next film based on some sketches he had made back in the 70s, uh, but ended up running into creative block in the process, partly because you know those concepts he had back then didn't really fully translate to where they were in the 90s. Um, to try to distract himself and get some inspiration, he ended up directing the seven-minute animated minute vi music video for the song On A New Mark by Japanese soft rock duo Chage and Asuka. I definitely recommend you check it out. It's not on HBO Max, like the rest of these films, but there are copies of it floating around, particularly on Vimeo. Um, I, it features a sci-fi story about police conducting a raid on a religious cult and rescuing uh, and helping a winged angel-like girl escape uh, with a bit of a post-apocalyptic nuclear twist at the end, uh, no doubt uh, falling into similar environmental themes as Miyazaki was predisposed to. Uh, one notable thing about this music video, it ended up actually being the first time the famously traditionalist Miyazaki would use computer animation to help to uh, end up helping supplement his hand-drawn cell animation. Uh, this would definitely help him get back on track for his next project, which would be Princess Mononoke, which premiered in 1997. Now, Princess Mononoke, or Mononoke Hime, is definitely one of those Ghibli films that a lot of people have a lot of feelings about, and mostly good feelings. Uh, and, you know, there have been dozens and scores of video essays and analyses and thought pieces on that I couldn't hope to match here in this retrospective. So what I can say is that I very much enjoyed the film, and I think it actually marks the beginning of what I consider to be Miyazaki's peak, uh, being one of his top three films, in my opinion. Again, all of Miyazaki's highlights are here. Strong environmental themes, digging into how humans interact with nature, both positively and negatively, uh, strong female characters on both sides of the conflict, uh, San, the, the titular Princess Mononoke, and Lady Ibosi, um, as well as the Iron Works uh, workers, who are all female. Um, complicated, no one is fully in the wrong, no one is fully right situations, well, except maybe the mercenaries working for the Emperor, but even then, Jiko is pretty charming. Um, I know a lot of people really cling to one to uh, the environmental message of, hey, don't fuck up with nature too much, otherwise, you know, uh, you're gonna get screwed over by trying to kill gods, um, but Honestly, I really dig personally that uh, Lady Bosi's character and and the whole conflict with how she's not fully in the wrong, right? Like you know, in a world where women uh, and former sex workers and and those with leprosy are looked down upon, she's able to build a frontier town where no one else could, uh, using these you know these uh, marginalized groups of society um, and they, making them her most loyal retainers, most competent retainers, pushing forward technology in a way no one had really, and you know everyone getting jealous of her. Yes, she ends up you know bumping up against nature and the boars and the wolves and the gods, but it's hard to fully be mad at her seeing that she created something from nothing for those who had nothing. And Asutaka, you know, the male main protagonist, uh, who received the curse indirectly because of her actions um, that would eventually kill him, realizes this and He's conflicted when he learns the truth, you know, not fully siding with Sun and the wolves as he sees that what she's been able to do, but also not being fully for her as he can see the impact, negative impact he's having on the environment. Uh, side note, Yakul is definitely the best Alkir and MVP of the movie. That's one loyal steed. 
And, you know, while the film is set in historical Japan, it does still bring in more supernatural animist elements that lend the magical equivalent uh, element to the film. Again, showing Miyazaki's mastery of world building, realizing that ecosystem of interconnected factions and spirits. Uh, speaking of, I think that the Kodama spirits are probably my favorite uh, of Miyazaki's supernatural designs in any of his films. On the production side of things, Mononoke was about 144,000 drawings, of which Miyazaki supervised all of them and reportedly either drew or made edits to 80,000 of them. Uh, of the two-hour film, about, reportedly 15 minutes uh, used uh, computer animation that Miyazaki explored from the On Your Mark music video. Uh, five minutes would be used to model and animate the too hard to draw by hand elements, such as the writhing demon flesh and the composited onto the cell animation, and another 10 minutes would be used to help for coloring purposes, uh, partially to help them finish production in time for the Japanese premiere date, with the final storyboards, uh, not even the cells, the storyboards being completed only months before it was released. In addition, the film would be the most expensive the studio had produced up to that point in time at $23.5 million. All of that hard work would pay off, though. It would end up becoming the highest-grossing Japanese film of 1997, beating out the record set by E.T. in 1982 before Titanic took the record away at the end of the year. Um, it also was the first film under the Disney Studio Ghibli distribution deal from 1996, uh, and it received an English dub, which fantasy writer Neil Gaiman wrote, and there was that whole, again, debacle with Miramax uh, uh, trying to make cuts and then eventually not cutting it. Um, it was also the first film of theirs to receive a wide release in the U.S. Um, critically, Mononoke would be the first animated film to ever receive the Japanese Academy Prize for Picture of the Year, and would be the country's submission for Best Foreign Language Film, though ultimately not be nominated for the Oscars. Uh, with Mononoke Hime's success, uh, Miyazaki claimed that it would be his final film, uh, beginning a long pattern of him supposedly retiring. Of course, there's still a bunch of time left in this podcast episode left to listen to, so you know that the story isn't over yet. Um, starting in 2000, the production began on what many would con- become to consider his magnum opus, uh, Spirited Away, myself included. Uh, like with Mononoke, there's already so much there about Spirit of the Way that in think pieces that anything I could say would just be a drop in an ocean of reflections of, of the film. I will say it's probably the Studio Ghibli film I've seen the most often throughout my life, and I can't honestly point to any one singular moment, though. Um, it was kind of a film that I'd seen at some point, and it was just always on in the background at different points in time, and I would just always stop and, yeah, just watch it, because enjoy watching all of the different antics that happened. The film is just it's just fun, right? It, it, it frankly has a bit of everything. Adventure, action, reflection, comedy, drama, character growth and development, character designs that are both intriguing, a little bit unsettling, and also infinitely familiar. The gentle giants return here, most notably with no face. The animation and characters and backgrounds all pop off the screen with their colors and detail while not being fully too busy or abstract. Um, there's no one singular thing about Spirit of the Way that can set it apart as a film worth checking out. It's just all of its moving parts working in tandem and in sync that make it tick. Maybe that's why there are so many thought pieces out there, you know, wanting to try to pick it apart and find those individual pieces. Uh, sir, there are all the hallmarks of his films which you know by now. Impressive world building of the supernatural variety, strong female leads, ambiguous antagonists, you know, a hint of environmentalism and a touch of anti-capitalism critique, uh, as well as a celebration of traditional ta- Japanese culture. Uh, Miyazaki said he wanted to make a film for his 10-year-old niece, which I'd argue many of his other films could be for that age range, but... That's who's to say that I'm right. Um, And I think even if he intended to make it for her, he ended up making a film for all of us. 
Now, financially, as I noted before, Spirit of the Way was the highest grossing film in Japan until Demon Slayer last year a 19, uh, took it away, a 19-year-old record. Uh, critically, it won universal acclaim with John Lasseter of Disney and Pixar supervising the dub. It won basically every award that it was nominated for for Best Animated Fe- Feature Film, um, at least what's listed on Wikipedia, uh, including notably the Golden Bear Award at the Berlin International Film Festival um, and the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature in 2003, the only time an anime uh, traditionally animated uh, hand-drawn film has won the category and the only time the foreign film has won again by default making it the only time anime has ever won at the Oscars uh, many have called it one of if not the most important films not just animated or Japanese but just films of the 21st century uh, thus far and of course it definitely is the best isekai ever produced so in 2001, the year Spirit of the Way was released, Ghibli said that they were going to adapt the novel of Howl's Moving Castle by author Diane Wynne-Jones. I can't find a solid source, but I do see various articles and allusions to Miyazaki retiring after Spirit of the Way, thinking he would never be able to beat it. Um, while And Mamoru Hosoda of Wolf Children, The Summer Wars, and The Girl Who Loved Through Time fame, among others, was slated to direct the film. However, the creative vision of Hosoda differed from what the producers wanted, um, and ultimately, ultimately the project kind of went into stagnation. Um, at which point, after reading the novel, Miyazaki again got out of retirement and was inspired to work curious about the image of a castle walking across the countryside, uh, leading to the iconic chicken-legged castle we get in the film. Uh, ever the Eurofile, he traveled to France to research the architecture and landscape. Um, all to this to say, you know, if he if he was retired after Spirit of the Way, he did a bad job of it, as Howl's Moving Castle came out in 2004. Uh, now, I will say that Howl is another film of his that I have seen before starting the project, but it's been a while, like in Porco Rosso. And unlike Porco Rosso, I didn't really have time to watch it before recording this episode, uh, so I won't too talk, talk too much about the specifics of the film, as I only have the most iconic images of the films, Castle for the Fire, The Moving Castle, Howl and Sophie Walking on Air and Flying, again, Miyazaki's Left for Flight, uh, specifically with Calcifer, the food, which... I haven't even had the chance to just talk about how great Miyazaki makes his food, which I think is another element of the world building of like, oh, this food is something that is, you know, just a part of the world, right? Giving that much detail to food. But in any case, uh, reading about the themes of the film, I definitely as a kid did not pick up on the anti-war and pacifist elements of the film, which was supposedly created as a critique of the U.S.-Iraq war and was made to be a film poorly received in the U.S. Uh, to that end, I think Miyazaki kind of failed in that regard as house. Uh, was nominated for another Best Animated Feature in 2006, though it ended up losing to Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Um, but, you know, it definitely is just a great film all around, from definitely what I can remember, and I'll probably go back and rewatch it, honestly, after this episode comes out. After Howl's, Miyazaki went on to make his take on The Little Mermaid, also known as Ponyo, which came out in 2006. Now, having watched the Ghibli films I hadn't seen in chronological order, you definitely can get a sense of the evolution of Miyazaki's style over time. Obviously, he was a bit constrained in his debut work, Castle of Cagliostro, to having to match the style of Lupin III from TMS. And his early works at Nausicaa and Laputa harken back to his days working at Nippon Animation, and the character designs there have, and I don't really have a firm basis for this, but I have a strong suspicion that uh, there's a strong European animation influence in there as well. And then while Totoro, Kiki, and Porco all are distinctly Japanese in their style, it's almost as though they have gone along a somewhat evolutionary track against the rest of the industry when it comes to character designs uh, with a more rounded look. Um, I, again, I don't have a firm basis for this, but just something about the European, there's definitely some quality of European 
animation in the DNA of Ghibli films. Uh, Mononoke is spirited away and how all modernize that cell a bit while adding in CG elements. Now, one person I haven't really talked about yet when it comes to Ghibli is character designer and animation director Katsuya Kondo, who did character design for Kiki and also worked on short films for the Ghibli Museum. Uh, one of these films, House Hunting, was done in hand-drawn animation without computer elements uh, with a slightly different design than what they had, uh, you know, stronger lines, more basic shapes, and so on. Uh, you know, he ultimately was brought on as animation supervisor for Ponyo, and one of the tenets of that film from pre-production was that it would be entirely traditionally hand-animated uh, to show off what hand-drawn animation could do, uh, with the CG stations at the studio being shut down, actually, for production, uh, so as they, they wouldn't have to lean on them. Uh, what results is, in my opinion, the most stylized and unique-looking of Miyazaki's films. Uh, in addition to being inspired by the hand-drawn animation, Miyazaki was also inspired by the seaside town of Tomomura, in Japan, the literary works of author Natsume Sosaki, and the Tate Britain Art Museum and Wagner, Wagner opera, Wagner's opera The Valkyrie, as well as the famous painting of Ophelia. Animation-wise, again, Ponyo definitely has a very distinct look to it. Uh, in particular, while perhaps it isn't as much flight, per se, uh, as in other Miyazaki films, the use of water and waves kind of replaced that. Uh, I guess Miyazaki likes his fluids. Uh, and while the return of unique, and we also see the re return of unique vehicular design, specifically the submarine ship of the wizard Fujimoto. I think plot-wise, it definitely is a film aimed more toward children, which Miyazaki explicitly said he wanted to do, with a more simplistic plot and a fairly straightforward resolution despite the predicted gloom and doom. Like, Sosuke's so-called test of love is pretty easily passed, in my opinion. Um, similarly, right, kind of like the background, oh, the end of the world stuff, um, kind of, from a child's perspective, isn't really touched on as much. It's there, but it's not really elaborated on. Kind of in the same way that, you know, the situation with uh, Satsuki's and Mei's mom in Totoro isn't really elaborated on all that much, only in how it directly affects the two kids, uh, which kind of makes sense given that they're both the most kid-focused shows from Miyazaki. Um, I imagine the spectacle of the ships and the underwater denizens and Ponyo's transformation showcasing the hand-drawn animation suffice in keeping our attention at, at the world that Miyazaki has created without needing to get into all the nitty-gritty of those details. Though thinking it more and more again, Miyazaki's hallmarks still come in, you know, reinforcing positive harmonious relationships with nature, the seaside town, and the environmentalist father who is horrified at humans and the harmony due to the oceans. Uh, speaking of the father, while the antagonist of the film isn't necessarily a bad guy like as many characters, they, uh, there isn't really a pure evil character here. He's just trying to save the world in the way that he thinks is best. Uh, anyway, Miyazaki wanted his next film to be a sequel to 2008's Ponyo. Uh, not really sure what the story would have been, but hey, I'm not the guy who made up the story. Uh, but uh, instead, producer Suzuki convinced him to make his next film, The Wind Rises. Uh, some backstory here. Uh, starting in 2009, Miyazaki had published a manga in the same model graphics magazine uh, where he had uh, done Porco Rosso originally about the life story of Mitsubishi A6M Zero Fighter designer uh, Jiro Horikoshi. This was the same... This is the guy who designed the planes that his father would go on to make. Um, he also ended up co-writing, in this time also co-writing the screenplay for some other Ghibli films. And he did direct this Ariadne and from Up on Poppy Hill. Uh, in any case, Ghibli announced that Takahata and Miyazaki would do another double feature in the tale of Princess Kaguya-sama and the... Or, the Tale of Princess Kaguya, and The Wind Rises, respectively. Uh, obviously, Princess Kaguya would be delayed, as we talked about in previous episodes, and The Wind Rises would release in 2013. 
Now, I don't remember exactly when I saw The Wind Rises. I only really started logging the movies I watched, like, in 2017, with a handful I could reverse engineer from emailed movie receipts back in 2014, but I do remember seeing it in theaters at, I believe, the IFC Center here in New York City. I believe at the time, Miyazaki had announced that it would be his final film again, and so it definitely felt like it would be his creative send-off. Uh, the film was inspired by a quote from Horikoshi. I only wanted to create something beautiful, in response to seeing the devastation that his planes would wrought throughout World War II. Uh, as the son of a plane manufacturer who helped make said planes, and as a creative individual, and as someone with a strong anti-war sentiment, uh, Miyazaki, I sense, you know, definitely felt put, put both all those conflicting elements into this film and tried to reconcile them. I'm sure he at least felt some sort of kindred spirit in Horikoshi as someone who had a privileged upbringing because of war manufacturing and was able to pursue a creative career and wanted to create beautiful things. Uh, the scene of Jiro frantically drawing and designing airplanes like a workaholic, I'm sure had a bit of Miyazaki in there. Obviously, we see a return to his love for all things aeronautical here with Porco Rosa, from Porco Rosa with Italian aeronaut Caproni making uh, appearing in the film. Uh -huh. The film also draws from the novel The Wind Has Risen from Tatsuo Hori with scenes of tuberculosis, um, again, something from Miyazaki's childhood with his mother. Uh, even if the subject matter like Porcarosa isn't fully kid-friendly, he apparently had done a 180 and was encouraged to cover those topics um, despite them not being something kids were used to because, as one colleague said, kids would be exposed to unfamiliar subject matters. A bit of an evolution for his thinking for Porcarosa. Uh, ultimately, The Wind Rises feels like an appropriate closer on Miyazaki's career as a director and as a meditation reflecting on the insatiable desire to create something true to your ideal of beauty and indulging it in what you truly love, even adding Miyazaki another nomination for Best Animated Feature that year, though losing to Frozen. Or it would be a perfect ending if, of course, as we know, Miyazaki, because as of course as we know, Miyazaki is a workaholic driven to create, which, as we sort of guessed based on the content of The Wind Rises, uh, and he came out of retirement again officially in 2016 to work on his next film, How Do You Live, based on the 1937 novel of the same name, uh, reportedly as something to leave for his grandson. Uh, the film was originally set to debut for the 2020 uh, Tokyo Olympics, but, well, aside from the Olympics being delayed due to COVID, uh, the famously perfectionistic Miyazaki is taking his time with the film. Uh, five years on from production at the end of 2020, uh, they were about halfway done, allegedly, with an estimate from producer Suzuki that the film would come out about three to four years from now and it's set to be 125 minutes long. So we're looking forward to that podcast episode in 2024 whenever we talk about his next film. Hayao Miyazaki is many things. Some call him the never-ending man. In fact, there's a documentary uh, on HBO Max uh, about, uh, that, with that very title about him uh, with another documentary for, about Studio Ghibli at large called The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. Uh, he's an amazing animator, a pacifist, a feminist, an environmentalist, a traditionalist, from where we can tell a stern father toward Goro Miyazaki, who has lived in his saddle for decades, a workaholic who makes for a terrible retiree, an aviation nut who really, really, really likes his airplanes, uh, someone who thinks anime is a mistake. Okay, that's a bit of a joke, but he has admitted that he's not a fan of otaku culture and anime. Uh, he's the face of anime for many individuals who love his films from their childhood and in their adulthood. Personally, I may be a bit more of a fan of Takahata's works, but I can't deny that Miyazaki has a gift. Uh, more than anything else, Hayao Miyazaki is a world builder, sometimes creating brand new worlds from scratch, uh, sometimes layering on a hidden world in nature around us. Uh, from creative character and vehicular designs to subtle movements when it looks like nothing is happening, just to flesh out the world a little bit more, um, to make it more feel more lived in. 
from the texture of the food that looked better than anything in real life to making magic and spirit seem and supernatural seem just one of the mill and part of your everyday life. Uh, if anime and film and animation in general are meant to take you out of your current world and convince you that the reality of the one displayed on screen, then you know no one does it better, I think, than Hayao Miyazaki. Thanks again for listening me to my thoughts on Hayao Miyazaki. It probably isn't the most comprehensive. Entire episodes could be written on just singular aspects on just one of his films. Never mind trying to do an entire retrospective over his entire career and following the tropes common throughout, as well as stories about production and his evolution of style, but I did my best. Uh, as far as ranking my favorite Miyazaki films, as I noted, I think the trifecta of Spirit of the Way, Mononoke no Kahime, and House Moving Castle are his peak, um, and, and you know, though not quite as high as, as Takahata's Hagia Hime, um, be underneath those, I believe, are the ne- in the next tier are the underappreciated Porco Rosso and Kiki's Delivery Service, um, alongside Takahata's Pompoko and, y- and the Yamas- Yamada Neighbors. Um, Miyazaki's earliest and latest films, Nausicaa, Laputa, The Wind Rises, and Ponyo, live in a tier beyond below those alongside The Grave of the Fireflies. And then for me personally, again, this is just my personal taste, not saying they're bad films, uh, are Totoro and Castle of Cagliostro, um, alongside Only Yesterday from Takahata. Uh, Whenever I get around to doing the final episode of this three-part series looking at the other Ghibli films, I'll probably make a tier list or something on Twitter. Uh, in any case, but that being said, again, all of these films are amazing and definitely worth checking out, and you should. Uh, in, that, in that note, uh, what are your favorite Hayao Miyazaki films, and why? Uh, what are your least favorites? Uh, what themes of his that carry throughout all his works are your favorites? What lessons have you taken away from him? Uh, you can let me know on Twitter at YetAnimePod or via email at YetAnotherAnimePodcast at gmail.com. You can follow my MyAnime list at NinjaBoy333, boy with an I. Uh, we're found on all the major podcast services, iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review, or at the very least, share the show with an anime-loving friend. Uh, if you want to more directly support the show, you can do so over on Patreon.com. Links to all of those will be in the show notes. Intro and outro music divided, is provided by Suichi Sakagami at Tandas.com. Editing and production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. That's it for this episode. We air on the first and third Fridays of each month, though I know this is a little bit off schedule. Uh, next next time on yet another anime podcast, if all goes well, I should finish up my Studio Ghibli three-parter by looking at all of the films directed by people other than Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata. I may need a couple of days more than when it normally would come out next week, so uh, you know, act, so I can actually watch them all since this episode took longer than expected. But you know, you still should see something in your feeds next weekend. Uh, if I can't find time to watch all the Ghibli films, maybe I'll delay this that episode and instead do a Netflix anime roundup since there's a lot of really interesting things coming out out there. I'm really excited for Tresse uh, this weekend. Um, we'll see which one it ends up being. But until next time, uh, see you, Space Cowboy. Bang.